My name is Alec Crawford, and this is Stay, a podcast about sustainability, technology, artificial intelligence, and how they impact you at home, at work, and around the world. I am discussing these topics with high-profile guests to give you important information that goes much deeper than other sources. Find out answers to questions like, can artificial intelligence save the planet? And how does ESG investing affect you? We can build a better, sustainable future together. Welcome to the State Podcast. I've got Bonnie Wonkakul here with me, and she's the chartered financial analyst and the global head of ESG investments and portfolio manager at Western Asset Management Co. And March is Women's History Month, so it's great to have you here, Bonnie, and we're going to have a great time. Great to be here, Alec, and thanks for having me. So why why don't we start, just tell me a little bit about your career journey to where you are now at WAMCO. Yeah, so I really came into sustainable investing, I would say, by happenstance. And as you know, Alec, I had been a mortgage portfolio manager. That's how we know each other from years back, which honestly, mortgages were about as far from sustainability as you could get back in 2017 when I first started thinking about ESG. And I had been looking to broaden what I was doing in the investment world. Um, So I really went to my senior management at Western Asset and expressed this desire to do something outside of mortgages. And my idea at the time actually was to do something across uh, all the sectors within fixed income. So something like U.S. broad market portfolios. Um, But instead of doing that, because there wasn't a need to add to that team at the time, they actually asked me, would you be interested in looking into ESG? They had been hearing about the need for doing more in ESG from the international clients, and they really didn't know what to do with this. Um, And so I reached back into my roots and experience as a strategy consultant, management consultant, and just looked to see what are the trends, talked to a lot of people in the industry, talked to clients, and I thought, this is definitely not going away. This is in 2017, uh, and I think it's going to grow, and we, there's a lot we can do to prepare for this. So I made the recommendations to management and they took it to heart and asked me if I wanted to uh, head up our initiatives. And so that is how I came into this particular role at Western Asset. Awesome. Well, you, you definitely got that trend right. I'll tell you that. Why don't we just t- let's talk a little bit more about Wamco. What lines of business is Wamco in? Yeah. So Western Asset Management is a global fixed income manager. We have about $400 billion under uh, management, and we are headquartered in Pasadena, California, but we also have eight other offices around the world, uh, and we do manage all kinds of fixed income, fixed income only, but it's all different types. So we have all different types of mandates, you know, multi-sector mandates, absolute return, corporate-only mandates, uh, emerging market dedicated, bank loans, municipal bonds, and of course, mortgages, uh, uh, mortgage-backed securities and asset-backed securities. So pretty much in the fixed income uh, public market spectrum. And we are a fundamental value active manager. Uh, We have a long-term investment horizon. So ESG is important to us. Um, Ingreening ESG to all our mandates is important because we think you do need to look at all the factors, you know, whether it's financial or ESG related to assess what is the intrinsic value of this uh, security. Um, And we do think that it also helps, especially as a fixed income manager, to improve the risk return profile of what you are investing in. So as global head of ESG investments and a portfolio manager simultaneously, what's the the scope of, describe the scope of your role. Sure. 
So as the global head of ESG investments, I do lead all of our ESG initiatives. So that would include our ESG research, our engagements, our strategy. And that means that I work really with the entire investment team across all of our offices around the world, uh, but also with all the different groups within the firm. So not just the investment team, but also obviously client services, given that individual client preferences are really the driver of how we're writing these investment guidelines for our sustainable mandates. Also legal and compliance, there's obviously a really big regulatory element going on around the world when it comes to sustainable investing. And then last but not least, um, IT, information technology, because there is a huge data element involved today when you're doing um, ESG investments. And I am a bit unusual uh, for a head of ESG because I do have portfolio management responsibilities. And I do also manage broad sector portfolios, which, if you recall from what we were just talking about, that's what I initially was seeking to do and uh, ironically has come full circle because that is one of the first dedicated mandates that we seeded with U.S. broad sector. Um, So often people that are heading up ESG or people in my position aren't actively investing. They're more focused on the research and engagement process, but not the asset allocation. So this is a little bit different than how this is structured at other organizations. You mentioned technology and data. Talk a little bit about how ESG investing is integrated, not just into your investment process as a portfolio manager, but Wamco's process in general. Sure. So I would say integration is the right word because that is what we are applying to all of our portfolios. And it really starts from a bottom-up perspective, you know, at the issuer level, at the sector level. And it's really, the ownership is really at the research analyst level. Uh, So all of our research analysts uh, specialize in certain sectors, and they have created ESG frameworks where they've really outlined which of the factors under each of the pillars, the environmental, the social, and the governance pillar that they consider to be most material for each of the subsectors that they're covering. And and those frameworks are often different from what you'll see in some of these uh, third-party research vendors. That's one difference. And I'd say another really big difference is that they're really taking a forward-looking approach, right? These research vendors that many of the asset managers, including ourselves, subscribe to, those are based upon historical reported data. And as investors at Western Asset, our job is to look into the future and see how is this value going to be evolved uh, and how is it going to be reflected within the market. So so the same type of philosophy is being applied when these research analysts are looking at ESG. They're going to say, looking into the future, how is the ESG profile of this issuer going to evolve? Uh, And that's really something I think that's a bit different from what you're going to get from just a third-party vendor. I would also say that for us, uh, we have interaction with management, right? And that's very essential to, especially to ass- assessing the governance pillar uh, when we're when we're assessing ESG. Um, that's really the linchpin of of, a, of an issuer's performance. So that's another, uh, I would say, differentiation. Uh, and then finally, I would say that you know we are that fundamental value manager, and so when we're assessing ESG, it is about how is the ESG being reflected in the pricing of this issuer? So an issuer that is trading at a wider spread and has room for improvement in ESG is going to be a lot more interesting to us than one that is perhaps a leader in ESG, but that is trading at really tight spreads. And you know, you talked about the analysts and how much work they're doing, uh, looking at companies and sectors and, and looking at the ESG factors. Obviously, there are some smaller private companies. You know, you mentioned bank loans earlier, where it may be more difficult to get information, or there's less 
ESG information available? How, how, do, you, how do you deal with that? Sure. I mean, admittedly, it, it is a big challenge, like you said, especially in bank loans or even high yield, where we're investing in bonds that are issued by private companies. I would say that information flow when it comes to sustainability has actually improved because it is such a part of our financial ecosystem now and investors are so interested in it, but we're still obviously not seeing the robustness and consistency of the disclosures that we'd like. With bank loans in particular, the LSTA, which is the Industry Association for Bank Loans, they've developed an ESG questionnaire uh, several years back, and that's becoming increasingly used uh, and, and is giving us more information. But it's still relatively basic, obviously, if you're going to compare it to investment-grade companies that are issuing these full CSR, corporate sustainability reports. And I think this is where it does come back to engagements and having conversations with issuer management because when you have a direct line to the people in charge of these, you know, more opaque companies, you can get more questions answered. You may not get all the detailed data that you want, say, on a company's carbon emissions, but at a minimum, you can get a sense for how management is thinking about them or how they're going to handle them and, and are they capable of actually executing upon a strategy to handle them. You know, obviously, a lot of the publicly available data is, or the data from the third parties is publicly available or is just, you know, off their website or whatever. So being able to have conversations with management is critical. Absolutely. Um, and then what about non-corporate fixed income? Like, you know, what we were talking about earlier, agency mortgage-backed securities or CMBS or something like that. How do you, how do you rate that? Yeah. Well, when it comes to securitized loans, those are obviously different from corporates, like you said, in many respects, especially given that none of them are rated by any third-party ESG research vendors. But one major difference, I'd say, between those and most corporate bonds is that these uh, mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities, they're basically use of proceeds bonds. You know, you know exactly what types of activities that you're financing. So when we're looking at these types of securities, MBS and ABS, we look at those use of proceeds. We're looking at the collateral. We're also looking at the issuer and the servicer of that collateral. And then we look at both of those facets and we make an assessment of what are the ESG risks and what are the opportunities, and we come up with an ESG rating. So if we talk in particular about agency mortgage-backed securities, we think they're generally positive from a social perspective. You know, the agencies, they were formed by Congress. Uh, they have a charter to increase home ownership, which in the United States, it's been a major way for households to build financial security. So we would generally give a positive rating to agency MBS for that reason. Also, Fannie has been, Fannie Mae has been issuing green bonds for about 15 years now, right? They were one of the first green bond issuers in the United States. And both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have now started pulling not just green mortgages, but also mortgages with social impact. And both of those agencies are making a lot of efforts uh, to respond to growing demand from investors for more sustainably focused issuance. And they're providing more social disclosures in particular to help investors select collateral that helps them to meet their objectives. So we're taking those attributes into account as they're coming out and using them also as a tool to select investments with positive impact for clients that want that. And and speaking of, of your clients and investors... How do you communicate your ESG strategy to your investors? We have a set of standard reporting that shows clients the overall ESG attributes of their portfolios, like their ESG quality, things like uh, carbon intensity. 
But depending on the client's interest and level of sophistication, you know, we also have reports that show how well their portfolio is aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, or the SDGs. And that would include things like their allocation to ESG-labeled bonds, like green bonds or sustainably linked bonds. And then we have a lot of customized reporting for different sustainability-focused clients because what they focus on can be very detailed and it can be very particular. Sounds like you're you're really made huge amount of progress since you uh, since you started in that area. So thinking about the the next year or so, obviously a lot of stuff is uh, going on in investing and markets. What do you think your biggest challenge is over the next year? I'd say the biggest challenge for the sustainable investors in general is that we need to scale up climate finance. I think this has been talked about for years. They hit on this again last November at the Conference of Parties, COP27. So I think there is this critical mass of understanding that we do need to do it. However, it is so difficult. We've been talking about it for years. And even now, the world is really investing, you know, the estimate is something like, you know, only one third of what we need to address climate risk. So there's a lot that needs to happen for us to get up to the right amount. Uh, And in previous years or in the earlier years, private sector had really been leading the charge and was doing the heavy lifting. Obviously, that wasn't working well enough. We're not where we need to be. Now we are finally seeing some support from policymakers, from lawmakers. And we do see a really good model of an ecosystem in Europe where you have legislation, you have regulations working to coordinate the efforts of not just governments, but also issuers and investors together. But that still leaves a lot of countries still kind of out in the cold, particularly within the developing markets. So I think that that's where you're going to need a lot more effort from things like the multilateral development banks to help bring together the policymakers, private investors, you know, bring down the cost of financing, and also bring in their advisory expertise to help countries get up the curve, these developing market countries, to help them develop their project pipelines, to help them look at different financial structures, you know, including things like green bonds. So there's a lot of money in the Inflation Reduction Act for sustainable everything you could dream of, including loan guarantees and things like that. Is, is that going to help at all over the next year? Or? Oh, absolutely. And I think you're going to see that not just this next year, but over several years, right? Because these incentives are in place for multi, uh, multi-year multi periods. I think you're seeing some of that already, but with all of this type of stimulus, it does take some time to fully get reflected in the system. So turning from big picture to narrower picture, you, you've been doing this for a while now. And uh, you know many companies don't have a head of sustainability or a head of ESG investing yet. I mean, surprising, but true. What's the best advice you can give to a, a new head of ESG investing or let's say a chief sustainability officer at a public company? I would give a few pieces of advice. I'd say first, what you really need to make it work is senior level buy-in, senior level support. If you have that, then building buy-in across the different groups in your organization will be a lot easier. Second, I would say when you're conveying the value proposition of these sustainable uh, efforts to your stakeholders, you really do need to speak in a common language, which is financial language. So you need to emphasize what are the financial benefits to the organization. 
with a better financial performance, more loyal customers or clients, more motivated employees, you know, it's just going to depend on the organization, but you really need to lean on that. And then I'd say third, you should not silo your efforts. You really need to cross fertilize them across the groups in your company to make things work. Companies that do poll their their customers and ask them about various, you know, ESG and sustainability things are often surprised how excited and interested their their customers are. So that's a, that's a great idea. All right, well, that was awesome. The last few minutes of the podcast, we do a section called underrated or overrated. So I'll read you a list of things and you can give me a brief response of whether you think it's underrated and overrated uh, and why. Sure. So, so we'll fun. start. We'll start with. Living in California, overrated or underrated? Right now, Alec, I would say it's overrated because it's been extremely cold and we've gotten reams and reams of rain, inches and inches. So currently overrated given the high cost of living in California. Uh, and hopefully, but hopefully it helps the drought. So yes, you're right. The transition to electric vehicles, underrated or overrated? Can I say both? Both yes. overrated and yes. underrated? <laughs> yes. It, it, it's obviously very necessary in helping us to get to net zero by 2050. Yet it really depends on many factors. The source of electricity you're using, you know, is it through coal plants or is it something cleaner? What is the size of the car that you're driving? Because even an electric vehicle creates a pretty big carbon footprint during the manufacturing process. How long are you owning and driving that car? Because if you're buying a Tesla every two years, not so great either. Uh, so I would say both. But but overall, bottom line, we do need to move to as many electrical vehicles as possible as quickly as we can. That's great. Well, I've owned three. So. Oh, well, good for you. Plant-based meat, overrated or underrated? Overrated. It, it, it is better for the environment, but in my opinion, Far too many of the versions are too overprocessed and unhealthy. The SEC's proposed climate risk and GHG filing rule, which uh, is going to be finalized in April of this year. I will give a non-answer, which is over-debated. Over-debated. Uh, yeah, over-debated. So I, uh, my take on that is, you know, companies just do it. You know, all the good companies are disclosing already anyway. No, I'm half kidding. I think it's a very good idea to get more issuers to disclose and not just to disclose, but also to disclose reliably. Yeah, and also to standardize a little bit more, which is which this will help with, one would hope. Uh, all right, so artificial intelligence for investing, overrated or underrated? Overrated. If it can't accurately write computer language code, which is what my daughter tells me, because I, I saw that ChatGPT can write code. It looks really good to me. I'm not a coder. And she said it's not very sophisticated. So if it can't write code, then it definitely should not be investing people's money. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, voluntary carbon credits. Overrated. There is a legitimate need for them. You know, we have these hard to abate sectors like cement and chemicals. But we really still need to work through a lot of issues for that market to be reliable. There's issues of double counting, additionality, measurement. So until those get worked through, overrated. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's been great talking to you today. This was a, a, a fun interview and great to reconnect. Um, 
And so thank you so much for, uh, for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Alec. You were listening to the State Podcast. You can listen anywhere you listen to podcasts. For example, Apple Podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and comment. And you can also find us on stayblog.substack.com. Thanks. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that.